0: I would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, as we turn to the text of our sermon for today, Ephesians chapter 6, once again we'll be looking at verses 10 to 20, we're going to focus in on 17 once again, the latter half of that. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly Make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we open your word today, we seek you. Lord, not not just your blessing, we want to know you, we want to see you. We want to understand your will, your character, your heart. We want to be transformed by what we study, by what we sing, by what we pray, so that we might become more and more like your son who gave his life to bring us from death to life. So we invite you, Father, to speak, O Lord. Speak through your word that we might rightly comprehend what you have for us today. Father, we have many things that we want to to ask you for, many needs. But before we ask for our needs, Lord, we want to give you ourselves. In this moment, Lord, humble us Strip away anything that might exalt itself above and against the knowledge of you. Silence the voice of any deception. Father, we have enough difficulty with our own mind. Protect us from the evil one that he might not deceive, distract, or discourage in this moment. Give us hearts that are ready to receive your word. Fertile ground for you to plant the seeds of truth. And Father, where these seeds have been planted, we pray that through the discipline of discipleship and application, that you would bring to fruition what you are doing already in our lives. We thank you Father that for all who are in Christ your holy spirit is already present in us marking us sealing us guaranteeing that you will finish what you started. Lord we confess that we far too often seek our way rather than yours even even those of us who have already repented and and turned and, and claimed Jesus Christ as our Lord, we have this problem of continuing to climb down off the altar. So bring to our minds, even in this moment, Lord, those hidden faults, those things that we have done that fall short of your glory that we might hand them over to you in repentance and turn away from them. Father, make us not only aware, but give us mastery over our willful sins, those areas of life where it's not an accident, but where we have run headlong into what we know is not right or we have resisted what we know you've called us to do. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Make us more like Jesus in this moment. Father, we give you all glory, all honor, all praise, because you alone are worthy. And your mercy and grace to us stir us. Your kindness brings us to repentance. We thank you, and we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, for your glory. Amen. As we continue in our All for One series in Ephesians, we've been kind of hovering here in this uh, suit-up portion of chapter 6, as Paul issues instructions of a sort uh, to engage in spiritual warfare. This uh, kind of a call to action as well. We're going to plan to look more at the call, call to arms aspect next time. Uh, but today we're focusing in on this core reality. The Word of God is our only weapon in spiritual battle. The Word of God is our only weapon in spiritual battle. Now, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, uh, the, the central point, the core reality of really of the whole letter, is that God is bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. By his sovereign grace, he brings shalom, peace, blessing, unity, not only to his church, but through the church to all of creation. God initiates this unity as he sovereignly chooses, adopts, and shapes his people, placing us in and uniting us to Christ himself by grace through faith. This new life in Christ changes everything. It gives us a completely new identity as forgiven, clean, accepted, and loved royal children of the living God. Because he has done this, our old way of thinking Our old way of living no longer fits who we are. Paul calls the Ephesians, and by extension, calls us, to live lives that fit who we are now, not who we used to be. Now, he describes what that looks like, excuse me, and then points out that we're not living in some theoretical Christian life in some sort of a vacuum, this ivory tower kind of existence where life is a bowl of cherries. It's not just concepts and theories. Instead, he points out here in chapter 6 that we are in a constant battle. We're in a constant battle. Our, Our enemy, the devil, is constantly working to shipwreck our faith. Now, he cannot take us from christ there's nothing that we can do to lose the relationship that god has given us in his son but if the enemy can affect our thinking if the enemy can affect our thinking enough to influence the way we live and get us to live like who we used to be even causing us to doubt our own salvation then he can accomplish the next best thing, which is to deceive, distract, and discourage us to the point of paralysis. Notice the spiritual armor that Paul describes in the passage. There are things to put on, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of gospel readiness. There are things to take up, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, But only one of these things is actually a weapon. Let's look at that. First, as we have been seeing, there's this idea of of take. He calls us to take up this, this sword. Notice this. We take the sword by actively pursuing greater knowledge of Scripture. We take the sword by actively pursuing greater knowledge of Scripture. Now, in Acts 17, you don't have to turn there, you're you're sensible people, you can look it up for yourself. In Acts 17, the Berean believers are described as more noble than others because of their diligent study of the Word. They are specifically commended for checking all that Paul taught against the standard of the Holy Scriptures. Now now understand, the writer of the scripture, Okay, as Luke is writing the story in Acts, Paul is spreading the gospel, the greatest evangelist other than Jesus Christ himself, who ever lived. And he's planting churches, and he's establishing elders, and he's, he's bringing people to Christ. And the Bereans are not commended for just accepting it, just taking Paul at his word. They're commended for going to the scriptures and saying, okay, here's what Paul says. How does that match what we know the word of God says? I want to challenge us. I want to challenge you to do that faithfully with everyone that you listen to, everyone that you engage with, whether books or podcasts or the sermons from this pulpit you don't need human opinion. You need God's word. I need God's word. And so if at any point you ever hear anything that doesn't sound like it matches up, you need to check it against the standard. What's the standard? God's word. Go to the scriptures. Go to the Bible. To that end, if you don't have a Bible of your own, Or if you don't have a Bible that you can easily read and understand, we have some paperback copies at both doors, please take one. If you have a friend that needs one, please take one. Take as many as you need, we'll get more. Because you need God's Word in your hand. That's the standard. When when the Bereans are commended, it's not for just having faith and just believing as we so often portray Christian faith, we we act like it's some blind leap, but that is the opposite of Christian faith. Christian faith is a thinking faith, a reasoning faith that sees the evidence that God has given us in his own history, in his own nature, and in his own revealed word, and then saying, yes, there is a reason that I can trust this. That's Christian faith. We take the sword by actively pursuing greater knowledge of Scripture. Notice also, submission to the authority of expository preaching is central to growing in the Word. Submission to the authority of expository preaching is central to growing in the Word. Real quickly, let's turn to the book of Acts. If you're in Ephesians, you're going back to the left. Acts is a relatively long book for the New Testament, so you should be able to find it fairly quickly. Go toward the beginning of the book of Acts to chapter 2. As we see the book of Acts unfold, in chapter 1, it's really the, the end, it's the transition from Luke's gospel. He writes both books. From Luke's gospel, as Christ has risen from the grave, now in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, he ascends to heaven and says, hang on, the Holy Spirit's going to be here, going to fill you, and when this happens, you'll receive power from on high, and you'll be my witnesses. So they hang out. Chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes on them in a way that has never before or since Happened. And he fills the believers in what appears in the description to be like visible tongues of fire, flames that settle upon them. Doesn't say that they were on fire or that they were actual things, but this descriptive language is the best they could come up with to describe what happened. And they were changed. They received, as Jesus promised, power from on high. And the first thing that happens is Peter preaches. All right, So we see in Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit comes on them and begins the church. This is the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse fourteen, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd: "Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. That was the rumor going around. Was hey, these believe these clowns are all drunk? It was the Holy Spirit. They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No." Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter, immediately after being filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches. But he doesn't preach his opinion. What does he do? He uses the word of God to explain the moment. And he uses the moment to clarify the word of God. The point that he is making is the point that Joel is making. This is what expository, or if you prefer, expositional preaching is. It's where the point of the sermon is driven by the point of the passage. What does the author intend? And that becomes the preaching point. So when you hear me or anyone else preach a sermon, if it's an expository or expositional sermon, the goal is, here's what the Word says. Here's the text of it. I don't want to make stuff up. I want to preach what the Word says to preach. In other words, the text determines the topic. And as God applies that in our lives, in this particular case, to explain this Amazing phenomenon. Peter isn't making it up. God is drawing him into the text and through the text into their present moment. So that God, through the word, by the spirit, speaks into that moment. Expository preaching is central to the church and submission to the authority of expository preaching is central to growing in the word. Jump down to verse 42. After Peter preaches this sermon, and he draws together the events that have happened in Jerusalem, connects them with the events laid out in the Old Testament, and they are cut to the heart, and he calls them to repentance, we transition to a picture of what happens in the church. In this newly formed church, there's no organization yet. They haven't developed any structures yet. But notice in verse 42 what happens. They, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that is, communion, and to prayer. As they are gathering as a body, becoming a family, becoming one in Christ, their commitment is to the teaching of the apostles, sound doctrine, through expository preaching. Now why would I say submission to the authority of this is central to growing in the word? Perhaps you've heard the The phrase, sitting under someone's teaching, if if you are sitting at the feet of Aristotle to learn logic, you're sitting under his teaching, you are submitting yourself to the authority of the logos, of the word of that teacher. When we sit under preaching, as you are doing now, it's more than just hearing the preaching, it is submitting myself to that. You're not submitting yourself to the authority of the preacher in as much as you are submitting yourself to the authority of the word preached. And thereby the authority that the preacher wields in their faithfulness to the text. There is no allegiance in real life to me, but to God's word. If I ever... God forbid, get sideways of his word, then I must be disciplined by God and by the body. We must be corrected. God's word matters. Our submission to the authority of God's word brings us into submission to the church authorities as delegated by the Lord through the body. So we do have overseers who lead us but not of their own authority, only that which is delegated by God through the word. We must always recognize that. Notice in 2 Timothy, you can turn to there if you will, past Ephesians to the right. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. 2 Timothy. Cut this down. There's a bunch of Second Timothy. I'd like to show you. In the interest of time, I'll let you check it out for yourself. The call in Second Timothy. Oops, that's the wrong book. No wonder I can't find it. There we go. The call in Second Timothy is to be strong in the teaching. Picking up with verse, uh, let's jump to to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is actually the pastor at Ephesus. So as we're reading this letter to the Ephesians, understanding that the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, the first one and the second one, are to the pastor at Ephesus. Now, he's charging him throughout this on how to do his duties as a pastor. Notice what he says in chapter 3, starting with verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, religion so to speak, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. Sound teaching matters. They're the kind who, wor- who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That was even before Google. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. How will it be clear? Through the preaching of the word. Through the preaching of the word. We'll come back to that. Uh, Jump back to verse 14 of chapter 2. Verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Keep reminding God's people of these things the truths that he's already beginning in the first chapter and a half. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value. It only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Truth from God's word. Jump back, excuse me, Jump back to verse 10 of chapter 3. As you're handling God's word and you're dealing with the false teachers of life, which are more abundant now than ever because there are more means to communicate to a broader audience. You, however, Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to, bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, this is not a very happy picture he's painting here, right? Even in the church, he says this to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, even from among your own number will come wolves in sheep's clothing. We must be able to discern the difference between truth and falsehood. So work to show yourself approved that you can rightly handle the Word of God. Because the false ones, they're teaching something that sounds like it, but it isn't. Be ready. verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are about to make you wise for salvation, I'm sorry, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, as god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work as paul is, is charging timothy here with defending the faith in sound doctrine the answer is the preaching of the word it's the word that is useful because it's the word that is inspired The preaching from this pulpit is not breathed out by God, but the text from which it comes is. We must be people of the book. Submission to the authority of expository preaching is central to growing in the word. Next notice, scripture memorization keeps the sword always at hand. Scripture memorization Keeps the sword always at hand. We'll see this in a little bit. When Jesus does battle with the devil in the wilderness, he doesn't have to go searching to find the scriptures. He already has it in his heart. You don't have to turn there, but as Gary read for us earlier in Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist says, forgive me for lapsing into King James Thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. How do we keep ourselves from losing in the battle? Get the word not just in your hand, not just before your eyes, but commit it to heart. Know the word by heart, so that when you need the sword, it's already at hand. It's in you. And the Spirit can take it up for you. Scripture memorization keeps the sword always at hand. Let's move on. Take the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Now what does that mean? It means this sword belongs to the Spirit of God. This sword that you are taking up is actually you're taking it up and essentially you're putting it in the Spirit's hand. As you take the Scripture in, the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you as a believer, then He can empower that. He can take that sword and wield it on your behalf. As you wield it, He's holding your hand, if you will. I wanted to read for you the a passage from the Pilgrim's Progress. For the sake of time, I will not. But when Christian having come to Christ, having been saved, having been to Interpreter's house and, and having been to the palace beautiful, and, and he is armored up with in this allegory with what is a picture of this spiritual armor that Paul's talking about, he immediately goes into the valley of humiliation. Now, Christ's followers, say amen if you've been in the Valley of Humiliation before. What does he meet when he goes into this valley? But a foul fiend, as Bunyan would say it. Apollyon, the destroyer. This dragon-like creature who is the lord of that place. The prince of that region. And he recognizes Christian as a defector, one who used to belong to him, but now belongs to the Lord of all. And he hates him. And they do battle. And Apollyon falls upon him, and he fires his fiery darts at him. And Christian is able to extinguish them with the shield that we recognize as the shield of faith. But even with the armor on, he takes wounds in the battle. And as you can recognize, when we take wounds in a battle, we inevitably grow weaker. Finally, it comes to a point when Apollyon knocks Christian to the ground and the sword falls out of his hand. He lets go of the sword... Of the spirit. Which is what? The word of God. Now he doesn't lose his salvation. Nothing nothing eternally changes for him. He is not dead. But man is he in danger. And he's able to withstand the enemy with a mortal wound. When at the last moment he remembers and musters up the strength. To grab that sword. And in the strength of the Spirit of God, that sword deals a blow. And the Apollyon, the destroyer, flees. This is the sword of the Spirit. Notice this, the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord. You might jot down 2 Chronicles 20. We've been there enough times in recent weeks that I'm not going to take us back there today. But if you're unfamiliar, you can look it up. You can check that out. Jehoshaphat facing an overwhelming uh, adversary. Says, Lord, we don't even know what to do. We need you. And the Lord says, go, armor up, take your gear. But understand, this isn't your battle. I'll fight for you. And when they take up their armor and they go into battle, they find when they arrive that the enemy is already slain as God has turned them against themselves. All that's left for them to do is to pick up the spoils of war. To gather the blessing from God fighting the battle for them. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. This sword is not so that you can do battle yourself, but so that you can realize that as you obey and carry this word, the Lord fights for you. Really wanted to do that song. We didn't get to put that in, but really want... If, I'm telling you, check out, go to YouTube, pick up People and Songs. Is it People and Songs? Is it, People and songs, my God fights for me. Dude, awesome. Anyway, I digress, let me come back. The battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. Next notice this, when the Lord fights for us, we cannot lose. When the Lord fights for us, we cannot lose. Job discovered this. When after defending himself against his friends, who had good theology, but bad application. They understood God's character, but they thought they understood God's purpose. And God's ways are higher than ours. And Job was defending himself and said, look, I didn't do anything wrong. If God just shows up, we'll get this all straightened out. Until God shows up and says, who are you? Who are you, Job? Now, it's interesting to me that he rebukes Job. That's where he goes. The one who's faithful to him. And yet... He's getting sidetracked. God doesn't waste his time on the friends. He comes back to them later. He has very little to say to them. Job, who are you? I'm God. And Job immediately shuts his mouth. Lord, I spoke about things I didn't understand. And he says, I see now what I couldn't see before. You are the Lord No plan of yours can be thwarted. There is nothing bigger than God. If the Lord fights for you, you cannot lose. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. When the Lord fights for us, we cannot lose. Mark this down. If we neglect to take up the sword, we cannot expect the Spirit to wage war on our behalf. If we neglect to take up the sword, we cannot expect the Spirit to wage war on our behalf. Now, I dare not say things like cannot in relationship to God and His Holy Spirit. So I will say He will not. We cannot expect God to do something that God has not promised to do when we have failed to obey what he has commanded us to do. When God says, take up the sword, and we neglect the word of God, but we say, Lord, protect me. And God says, I gave you a sword. Why is it still laying on the shelf collecting dust? Lord, the devil is coming against me. Yeah, I told you he would. Pick up your sword. And I wonder sometimes if that isn't a little bit of the tone that God has. Now, that's speculation, and perhaps I'm going too far. But I think as a parent, that's what I'm thinking. Dude, pick up the sword. It's right there. When Christian strikes Apollyon, he is hurting. He's on his back, and he is about to go down for the last time when he remembers the sword. I need the sword. And he musters up the strength by the strength of the Holy Spirit within him to grab the sword. And it takes one blow. One blow. Take up the sword. If we neglect to take up the sword, we cannot expect the Spirit to wage war on our behalf. In the passage mentioned earlier, 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat prays to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'll fight your battle for you, the Lord gives them a command. You need to go up into the battle. You don't get to sit at home thinking that God will fight your battle for you and just deliver all the goods to your living room. The people of Israel needed to obey. They needed to act on the command of God to take up their arms and go to the battle. And when they arrived, they found out that God had already done what needed to be done. They had no right to expect that. Specifically, if they failed to obey by taking up arms. The sword of the Spirit is something that we must take. There is an active role for us in this. Take the sword of the Spirit, which Paul clarifies for us, is the Word of God. It's not the Spirit that is the sword. Don't misunderstand. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He is God. We don't take the Spirit. The Spirit is in us by God's decree, by God's design. He dwells in those who are united to Christ. Let us never fall prey to the deception that the Holy Spirit of God is somehow like the Star Wars force. This impersonal thing. We see this in in other world religions where we connect with the universe. You might as well call them metachlorians because it's the same idea as this fictional story. Use the force. Brother, you don't use the spirit, you don't use God. God's not a tool. He's not your servant that he should do for you at your command, rather, you obey him and take up his word. And when you pick up that sword, God himself steps in. It's the word of God that we are to take up. How do we do that? What does it matter? Let's understand what this sword is. First, God's word is powerful, useful, effective, and even dangerous. God's word is powerful, useful, effective, and dangerous. God cannot be thwarted. There is no plan of God's, no decree of God's that can ever fail. His word is powerful. We saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that it's it's inspired by God. Every, Every word of Scripture is breathed out by Him and is useful in our lives for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. God's Word is practical. It's not theoretical. It's a practically useful book. It's also effective. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 55. Not sure where that is. Go to the middle, find the Psalms, slide to the right a little bit. Isaiah is a pretty big book. You'll find it. Isaiah chapter 55. As you're turning, I will sip on my hydrogen dioxide. Good old H2O. All right, here we go. Isaiah, chapter 55. Understand as we read this that God's word is powerful, useful, effective, and dangerous. It always accomplishes what God intends it to accomplish. Look at uh, verses 9 to 11. This is in the middle of a grander conversation. I would encourage you to read more of it, but for now, let's look at 9 to 11. The Lord says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. But will accomplish what I desire. And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now we misapply that verse as we do so many others. It's not that everything that we do for the Lord bears fruit. Some things we do for the Lord do not bear fruit. By God's design. That's part of his sovereignty. But his word always does exactly what he intends. It does not work as a magic incantation. There are many who will teach essentially that it does. They wouldn't say that, but essentially that it does. If I pray the right words the right way, if I quote the scripture at the right time in the right situation, then God must move. And the word of God has been infused by us with this notion of magical powers. If I say the name of Jesus, or if I quote this scripture, the demons will flee and riches will fall into my lap. That is, theologically speaking, hogwash. That's blasphemous. God doesn't give us his word so that we can have some magical incantation. This is the revelation of his heart, his nature, his character, his will. By taking God's word into us, what we are doing is transforming ourselves to understand and know God better. It is always about a relationship with him. The spirit wields the sword, which is the word of God, and the word of God in us does what God intends for it to do. It does not do what I intend for it to do. The Spirit directs the sword. Notice, not only is it effective but it's dangerous. In other words, it cuts both ways. Our memory verse for today, you don't have to turn there, but you do need to memorize it. There will be a quiz. Is Hebrews 4:12? The writer of Hebrews says for the word of God is alive and active notice it's sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart this is a, a powerful useful effective and dangerous weapon against the enemy but like any sharp object It's also dangerous for us. Not dangerous in that it will cause harm. Abuse of it will when we twist the scriptures. But God's word is meant to cut us. In Acts 2, the sermon that we looked at, when Peter preaches that sermon, those who hear it are cut to the heart. That's what happens when we encounter God's word. We need to embrace the danger of conviction. To be cut to the heart with the word by the spirit. That dangerous impact. Changes us for the better. And draws us nearer to the heart of God. Next notice this. God's word is all we have with which to fight. It's all we have with which to fight. We mentioned that earlier. Of all these things in the armor. Everything is defensive. Stuff that you put on to protect yourself. The shield that you take up, to protect yourself. The helmet of the hope of salvation, to protect yourself. These are protections, but there is one, you don't swing your helmet around to do battle. You don't hit people with your shoes. You don't throw your shoes at people. That's just silly. But there's a weapon, a sword. This is the only weapon listed here. Which leads to the next point, God's word is all we need to defeat our enemy. It's all we have with which to fight, it's also all we need to defeat our enemy. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. You see the same thing in Luke 4, but let's turn to Matthew 4. Back to the left of where you are in Ephesians. You'll know you've backed up too far past Matthew if you get to names that you don't recognize. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has, has uh, been revealed. He has been, uh, he is identified with li- life in God's will through John's baptism. And then he is immediately taken for a testing. Matthew 4 starting with verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice God's not tempting him, the devil is tempting him, but this testing of being subject to it is from the Lord. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Uh, you think? The tempter came to him and said, "If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread." The devil is attacking his mind through the weakness of his flesh. You have natural urges, and in this particular moment, you're at a point of weakness, and the devil gets at you. His goal is not for Jesus to be hungry, but for Jesus to be spiritually compromised. And the temptation is simply to meet the urges of the flesh in a way that God has not given for that moment. And Jesus responds with the sword. With the Word of God, with Scripture, Jesus answers, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes the Bible at the devil. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. There is a pride element in this temptation. He hurts Jesus' feelings, or he tries to. He questions who he is. He questions his relationship with the Father, causes him, if it were possible, to doubt that he is the Son of God. He does that with us. He tries to get us to doubt that we're children of God, that God's word must not apply to us, that we might not be saved. How can we count on this? Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus relies on the scripture in this battle. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you'll bow down and worship me. Now this was going to be Jesus' lot anyway. He's the king. This is adjusting the timeline we get impatient with god don't we we want god to move on our timeline the devil tempts us in that way very often and jesus said to him away from me satan for it is written worship the lord your god and serve him only three times here jesus quotes the scriptures three times the devil has no response so he tries another angle In quoting the scriptures, we come to the place in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the power. It's all that we need to defeat the enemy. When we take up the sword, the word of God, the spirit wields that sword on our behalf. Our hand may be on it, but he's the one doing the swinging. And the devil cannot stand before the power of God The Spirit of God wielding the Word of God in the the person of God. James 4 7 tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. We resist, as in Bunyan's allegory, specifically and more importantly, as in this scripture we have here. We resist the devil with the Word of God, not with your willpower. Have you taken a look at your willpower lately? You ain't fighting any battles with that. With your smarts, your intellect, your strength. Yeah, you're a real match for the evil one. Of course you are. Strong. Not even a chance. But God's word cannot ever fail. When God fights for us, we cannot lose. It's all we have with which to fight, and it's all we need to defeat our enemy. Understand that God's word reveals God's nature and character. God's word reveals God's nature and character. Now, this is important to us because the battlefield that that this warfare takes place on is the mind. Our understanding. It's not about your circumstances. Your circumstances are irrelevant. They're tools that can be used to shipwreck your faith or to shape you into the image of Christ. Depending on how you respond to that, with the Word of God in your mind, we need to choose our thinking. We do that by understanding who God is. Rightly, understanding the nature and character of God. That's what God's Word does. This is the heart of Scripture. From beginning to end, it reveals to us God's character and will. We see that He's creative in Genesis 1. We see that He's holy throughout the book. And I think even in this moment, specifically of Isaiah 6, we see that He judges the wicked We see that that He is sovereign and rules over the, the affairs of man. Romans 1 points out that since creation itself displays the invisible qualities of God as creator so that no one has an excuse for unbelief. And as Paul writes that to the Roman church, it echoes the first half of Psalm 19. For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but please jot that down. In your... Quiet time this week. Look at Psalm 19 and keep this in mind. Paul is echoing that. There's no excuse for you to not believe in God because the world around creation declares His glory. You can't miss it. But the second half of Psalm 19, to me this is the most beautiful part. In the second half, the psalmist goes on to praise the perfection of God's revealed word. Perhaps most importantly in the scriptures, we see God's relational nature. His faithfulness and compassion. In several places in the Psalms, we see the history of God's interaction with his people Israel recounted. And we see the repetitive refrain, His love endures forever. We see the character, the relational nature of God in Scripture in a way that we cannot see it in nature. His faithfulness and compassion in the unfolding story of His relationship to His people through the major themes of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation Found in the Bible's overarching story. Notice this. As we see the character and nature of God revealed in Scripture, God's Word centers on God's Son. God's Word centers on God's Son. Take a look at Colossians chapter 1 from Ephesians, just a a couple of quick pages to the right. Colossians 1, starting with verse 15. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's the theme of Ephesians, by the way. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus... Is the living Word of God from the beginning. Back up to John chapter 1. We'll see a flurry of scriptures here and then we'll wrap it up. Past Acts to the book of John chapter 1. Starting at the beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. This is the beauty of the Word of God. Jesus is the living Word of God from the beginning. We recognize if you turn just a... a, Well, you don't have to turn there. A couple of pages right before this in Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus and meets two disciples who don't recognize Him. And he explains to them how all the things that happened in Jerusalem, including his crucifixion, were prophesied in the scriptures. And then he goes and walks them through the Bible. He walks them through the Bible, through Moses and the prophets, and demonstrates that all of this pointed to Christ. He was, in the beginning, all of this centers on him. All the scripture pointed to him. And in the end, Jesus will judge the earth by the powerful word of God. Turn all the way to the back of the book. Revelation. Let's look at chapter 1. Revelation 1. As John is introducing what the Lord is about to reveal to him and he's writing down for us. Take a look at um, verse 12 through 18. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Turn to the end of the book, to chapter 19. Not quite the end, but almost. Chapter 19 starting with verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. And Lord of lords, we'll stop there. The word of his mouth is the powerful weapon by which he will bring all evil, even the very presence of sin itself, to its final end. With that in mind, our last point, God's word cannot fail. But we often fail to wield it. God's word cannot fail, but we often fail to wield it. When we are defeated, we feel defeated. It is not that God's word has failed. It is that we have failed to take up the word. We have failed in our obedience. If we neglect to take it up, we dare not expect him to fight our battles. Our core reality The word of God is our only weapon in spiritual battle. If we will take up this sword of God's word to wield in battle, God's Holy Spirit within us will actually wield it on our behalf to defeat the enemy of our soul on the battlefield of the mind. But we cannot expect him to wield it for us if we neglect to take hold of it. When we get serious about God's word, we will begin to live the victorious Christian life through it. Because, as we read in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let's pray. Father, we are aware of this battle Help us to be diligent in taking up this weapon that you have given to us. Help us to adjust our minds, to align our thoughts with the truth of your word when our feelings betray us. Lord, remind us that the only weapon we have in our arsenal is your word and it cannot fail. We pray this in the name of your son who is the word. Amen.